Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. This week, we are joined by the lovely and talented Nicole Rollet, CEO and driving force behind Chen Bleu. We forgo wine talk and instead jump directly into the blood, sweat, and tears of building a modern luxury brand. From solving spreadsheets and finding the right partners, to acting strategically and overcoming fear of rejection, we're talking about the non-obvious demands and rewards of our industry. Let's get into it. Welcome, lovely Nicole Roulet. I'm so pleased to finally have you on this podcast. It's taken me a long time to get you here. How are you doing? It's always a joy to be with you. We've never had a conversation that hasn't been totally thrilling and interesting uh, from my point of view. Uh, so I'm delighted to be here today. Oh my, my heavens, this is why I keep you around right there. <laughs> you know, I, I, need, I need the ego. Um, so you and I had a chance to attend an event a couple of weeks ago in London. And in the process of it, and, and we will talk a little bit about that event, but in the process of it, one of the things that came up Um, as you and I were just chatting, is what people think it means to own and build a wine brand versus the reality of what it means to build a wine brand. And this is something that at Five Forest, we are constantly dealing with because, you know, the, the dichotomy between this romanticized view of, ah, I own a wine brand versus <laughs> I work my ass off to build a wine brand. It's just, you know, it, it's as disparate as it can be. And, um, and, and I've known your brand since before I've known you personally, as a matter of fact, and I really wanted to talk with you today about your experience, not, not with the wine, not with the education, but legitimately with what it has been in, Ooh, 16 years? Am I doing my addition right? There wasn't a real, you know, beginning, middle, or end to that. But yeah, I am. We did launch our first wines uh, in 2010, pretty much. 2006 was the first time we put our own wines in our own tanks. But there were 12 years of renovating the priory and the vineyard before that. So. Uh, it was a bit like putting a lobster in a pot and then <laughs> watching it slowly <laughs> boil. Um, yes, yeah, so it is. It has been a never-ending startup, and um, that's been part of the challenge. Is a, a sort of I call it a sprintathon. You know, the intensity of the sprint and the, the longevity of the marathon. So uh, I, I didn't think that the intensity of the effort would have to be kept up for for quite as many years. Um, and that's certainly something I would tell anyone 
who's getting into the wine business. It takes a lot longer to get to cruising altitude uh, than a lot of other businesses. And then when you get there, supposedly, from what I hear, uh, it's easier to stay there, but it just um, does take Herculean effort to defy the laws of gravity. Pandemics aside, you know, acts of God, not not accounted for when I so I've been self-employed since I was 24. And when I started my first business, I have a great accountant, the only person in the world who intimidates me, uh, who's been my accountant this whole time, who I said, yes, I've done the business planning. I wrote this fabulous business plan that got like used to teach people how to write business plans by the lenders sort of thing. Oh, it's so fabulous. I go to her with it and I'm like, all right, according to my business plans, I will reach profitability in two years. She starts laughing. She's like, <laughs> okay, if you reach profitability in two years, you're a freaking unicorn. You're lucky if you hit profitability in five years. And this was not with, you know, a high capital investment business, like we're going to go buy a medieval priory. Um, so I, I do want to talk about the money. But before we do that, just let me back up a minute, Shenbla, to give anyone in the room, if anyone hears us talking and doesn't know how fabulous Shenbla is, I'm going to be surprised, but give us the elevator pitch on Shenbla, what you make, where you are, and why it's fabulous. And then we'll talk money. We're in the heart of the Southern Rhone, but we're way up in the mountains. Uh, that makes it very special because we have all the advantages of the sun and, and concentration and ripe fruit of uh, sort of hotter latitude and all the elegance, finesse, restraint that you typically associate with the Northern Rhone uh, or cooler climate uh, wine. So the reason that we got excited that the vineyard might be a unicorn is um, because we could have our cake and eat it too. And stuff that most winemakers have to choose either or uh, we, we had all in our, in our own backyard. Obviously that's only the beginning because then you have to vinify it properly and do everything else right. But the vineyard itself is very exceptional. And that's why we had the ambition to make concrete quality from the get go, even though the region uh, isn't really known for that. And we took on a huge challenge uh, as a result of that. But I'm very excited that now all the wines in the range, the reds, the rosés, the whites, they've all been not just award-winning and critically acclaimed, but also um, very successful commercially, finally, after a million years of, of working hard to put it on the map. From day one, like before the land was purchased, the it sounds to me like the goal was to produce super premium wines. You were going to have a luxury brand. Is that correct? So it's a, it's a bit of a chicken or egg. I think, uh, you know, you don't wake up in the morning and think that your kid is going to be the next McEnroe in tennis. You need to notice that they really love it and they have a natural ability. Then create the right circumstances for them to express that and then get the third party validation and then go for it. So that's very much our story. We never woke up in the morning and say, oh, let's make a super premium wine. It was the vineyard that dictated the fact that we had the potential to do that. And that's why we, that's why I changed my life around because had it just been a nice, normal, sweet vineyard, like everybody else with a nice house in the middle of the French countryside, I would never have changed my whole life around, left my other successful professions and, and trainings behind to dedicate my 
myself wholeheartedly to something where the upside potential was met. I mean, why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. Um, Would you do that? No. No, no. But I I think that to be fair, everybody has a different, you know, what is meh? What do I want? What kind of life do I want? But the, the thing for me that I think is so important is these are mindful choices that we're making along the way. We're not swept along in a tide of, well, you know, I think that this is the price point for me, or I think this is what I do. Like there's a real conscious, no, I mean, you know, as you were going, there was a a strategic direction for the brand. Is that right? There's no question because again, because the potential of the grapes was there, then everything else that came from that was okay. The wine world has tons of wine. It has tons of fine wine. It doesn't need another wine. Does your vineyard have something special, new and different to add? And if so, and the answer is yes, then why should you let other people's expectations define what your expectation should be? If the potential is there to do something fabulous and you're the kind of person in life that wants to do fabulous things or nothing, <laughs> then there's a happy convergence of, of you know, that potential and your ambitions to do something special with your life. So that's really where the adventure began for me. So you talked about you left your career in banking and in think tanks. Um, So you have this very big brain before you go into wine. You go into wine. And if you're anything like smart people I know, you're like, well, I still need to be smart. I still need to use my brain. I still need to, you know, research and learn and find all of this. But um, also one of the things that I'd love if you could talk about is as you're transferring those skills and, and the intellect what about the tenacity side of it? Like you've, you know, you said you had all of these years before there was even anything in a bottle. I, I noticed that motivation can be hard when you're self-employed, just the realizing every day, oh my God, there's another thing that I didn't know. And now I'm going to have to learn. So if we've got the business direction, but we also have like this personal adaptation, was that something that you found uh, you know, a barrier, like a big change you had to make. <laughs> that was the oh, hardest really? part for wow. me. You know? I mean, having always been Why? shy and always been sort of in the shadows, I was much happier in a role as a lieutenant rather than decision maker or a facilitator rather than a creator. Uh, I also felt very comfortable in quite traditional milieus that one could, you know, disparagingly perhaps associate with quote unquote, the establishment. But, you know, I was working in think tanks for David Rockefeller and I was working in investment banks. So uh, these aren't sort of hot houses of disruption and innovation. And yet it's absolutely necessary when you want to take on a project like this to be in the driver's seat, to make a bunch of of decisions with incomplete information with no one there to validate on the spot whether it was the right decision or not and to transition into being um, someone who can create new thought and push boundaries and um, move into 
spaces that are not already occupied by lots of other people who have been doing that thing for a long time, which tends to be the characteristic of the wine world, right? We're not talking about tech or, or areas where everyone is in the process of innovating. But if you do move into traditional field, uh, that is probably one of the best places to go because if you try to go the traditional route, you're pretty much dead on arrival. Uh, and if you innovate yeah. and you bring new ways of solving for old problems, new ways of thinking about things, put, pointing out to people some of the incredible riches that are right there under their nose and that they may not have uh, always been open to seeing or appreciating, then that's um, a very, very exciting place to, to make your your you know a place for yourself in a in a traditional field so that's sort of how i ended up um rethinking Chenbleu, thinking wait a minute what is special here what can we do that hasn't been done where is the where's our usp where's the value added what do people need and want that they're not getting from all the traditional wonderful wines that are already out there and for whom i have lots of respect okay so where to start on that Hmm. Uh, without disparaging uh, any particular cultures. So uh, let me tell a story as an analogy. As an expat, there were many times when I was building my first business and I was young and I, you know, I didn't kind of have the balls that I have now sort of in, in how I dealt with people, right? We're in New Zealand. People would look at me and they're like, um, you're such an American in how you do things. <laughs> oh, that's not how things are done here. Oh, <laughs> that's a great idea. And then completely ignore it. Um, I mean, certainly that there were, and, and I'm thinking about all the people who are not in Napa or, uh, who go into wine and they've got this idea of, oh, I'm going to go in, I'm going to break boundaries. I'm going to put, you know, digitally native vertical brands. I'm going to do canned wines, gonna, whatever it is. I'm going to make blue wine. I'm going to make the world's most expensive wine. Pick whatever you want, right? That that is pushing against traditions and cultural traditions that come so far before us. You know, I, I think about that on the finance side. I think about it on the personality side. I think about it on just like sheer morale. How do you, is it, it how do you maintain the force of will <laughs> to just keep going in the face of all that maybe cultural <laughs> adversity coming at you. Your, your questions are so interesting because they are reflecting your experience as well as mine. And it's quite funny that we've had so many times. I know, I know. It might not be yours. And I was, I was trying to couch it in my own experience. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, I did get some interesting advice from someone in a completely different field. Uh, an American woman who had tried to make her place uh, in the English landed aristocracy in the 1970s. She was from Brooklyn and uh, very feisty. And she remembers being told by someone, listen, you're never going to be one of us. We don't want you to be one of us. Uh, if you want to be here and be with us, then you should be the most exotic exaggerated manifestation of who you are. 
like ham it up, be, right. <laughs> be the curiosity that people invite along because of all the outrageous things you're going to say or wear or whatever it is. And then we'll, we'll be very excited to have you along. So don't wear the tweed jackets and, and the wellies, you know, show up in the, with the, the red pants, <laughs> whatever, completely ham it up. So uh, obviously I wouldn't take the, the, the analogy too far in our case, because we have tried to be very respectful of all the, the history and the tradition of the incredible region that we're part of and, and learn so much from it. But the idea of being an also ran a wannabe, a carbon copy of, of stuff that's already out there at a cheaper price point or whatever, that's the box that they try to put you in, right? They want you, if you're in the Ventoux, for example, or in, you know, not in one of the Grand Cruz of the Rhone, they want you to be a cheap and cheery imitation of a Côte du Rhône, which is a cheap and cheery imitation of a Chateau Neuf du Pape. And they have their whole little pecking order. And as long as you fit into the neatly set up boxes that are there, um, they pretty much leave you alone to do your thing. And of course, if you have any pretensions to carve out your own space and, and shake up some of that establishment, then you are always going to be in hot water. But in our case, the advantage, I think, is that we're very remote. The vineyard is its own little ecosystem, microcosm, uh, eagle's nest at the top of this mountain. We don't really have neighbors. We're above the pollution line. We have this incredible forest all around us as part of a UNESCO biosphere reserve with crazy biodiversity. The Mont Ventoux reserve has 1400 species just of butterflies. So our neighbors are animals, not other vignerons looking over our fence and ready to sort of shoot down everything we say and do. So from that point of view, this, the fact that we make so little wine uh, relative to some of the big brands who could or should care about whether we are or aren't in such and such restaurant or wherever they, their, their battlegrounds are, um, and the fact that we are um, not in a, a wine region like Chateauneuf or like parts of Burgundy, that are so tight knit that everybody is immediately affected by whether the neighbor does or doesn't spray or whatever it is that I think uh, also helped us to have some freedom of movement to just be who we want to be. And it's a freedom that's typically associated with the new world. Um, and yet even in France, you can carve out, a little bubble where you're free to experiment, you're free to collaborate, you're free to to try turning the rules upside down and, and <laughs> see which ones make sense, you know, even though they're 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 very yeah. traditional and which ones in fact are very ripe for for a rethink. So even though um it was hard initially and people did very much try to dismiss our family, you know, and me in particular, um, some neighbor who knew us very well and knew exactly why we were so excited about the wine and all that stuff said, in my opinion, quite disparagingly about, um, about my husband. Oh yes, it's his dancer. I don't know if you know that expression, danseuse. Uh, which is uh, you know, yeah. what people do when they right they just want to have some wow. fun and all that. So yeah. uh, that was somebody yeah. who should have known better because he knew exactly what we were up to and why we were so serious at every step of the way. Um, and um, and then I got a lot of you know oh it must be the wife of the 
owner who has nothing better to do with her time, you know, and all that stuff, very dismissive, uh, as you can imagine. Um, but luckily you just yeah. level with people one-on-one and they see your work and you stick at it and sticking at it to your original question, you know, how do you not throw in the towel? I mean, it, to be very honest, it was, it, it was really hard. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I cried. I mean, I had a one situation with one of the architects, um, who was designing, um, an important part of the winery and we had all the meetings and we agreed on everything and he wanted to do this 18th century thing. And I was saying, wait a minute, it's a, it's a medieval property and it's very modern. It's all medieval meets modern. This place had nothing interesting going on in between um, the Templars, all the, all the history of a ninth century priory. And then this kind of cutting edge, bring it all, you know, not just to now, but to be well positioned for being one of the convins and, you know, the next generation as well. So, mm. uh, we had an arm wrestly thing and, um, he and the builder kind of g- ganged up on me and I prevailed and we agreed. And I came back a few weeks later to find that he had built something completely you know, to teach me a lesson, <laughs> nothing to do. Wow. Read on. I just, you know, I just fell on the floor and sobbed um, because there were so many times when it was hard to, it was hard enough to figure out what you wanted to do and how you were going to do it. But then to have people really want to show that they knew better than you was really difficult because it doesn't suit my personality. I'm not a bossy boots by nature. And so, I'm a consensus, you know, collaborator kind of person um, and having to assert yourself um, is, is harder for me than it might be for other people. So um, it, behind the scenes, it was a really rough time. I had all these dreams about, you know, having, I mean, classic anxiety dreams when you were first launching the wines and about rejection or whatever, where you were pretty much being turned, turned down or humiliated or, or in, I mean, it would manifest itself in all sorts of ways. And I found it really hard to have the kind of visceral confidence, uh, in who I was and what I was doing, um, to, to just sail through that stuff. Um, the way somebody else might have had with a stronger, um, belief, you know, self-belief. And I, I don't think I'm the only woman yeah. who, who needs 27 forms of validation before they know that they're on the right track. I mean, we can all use a little more swagger, right? (laughs) I I really, I I think that's it. And it's so funny. Um, Something that I talk about uh, that maybe tangentially um, ties into sort of pricing and, and your place in the market is that, you know, I always come back from events where I've had to go and I've been in, be in the public um, spaces and I have to talk about Five Forest. And it's always difficult to understand what is the level of swagger that I need to bring to that space. Because when you go to American spaces, well, the American competition is like fiercely hyperbolic. We are the best at everything and nothing can possibly compare to us. And when you're in, when you're in the antipodes, man, you don't talk like that at all. And when you're in Europe, it's much more, you know, about relationship building than it is about what you're going to say in a room. So it, it feels like it's sort of this constant 
um, adaptation to the spaces that we are in. And that is that for so many of us is personality driven, you know, like you're having to sit there and sort of empathetically in a moment, you read a room and be like, okay, how do I make this work? Um, I kind of want to go off on a tangent from that a little bit in the area of relationship building. So one of the things, like I said, I knew Shenbleu before I met you because there I was in the little Auckland, New Zealand, and we had your wines in you know, one of our like premium wine stores. Uh, and you have really excellent global distribution. Would you, you know, yes. Would you agree with that? For a, a new winery of a small size, I must say that I'm very uh, proud of the fact that we're in whatever, 25 countries, all that stuff. That was just the sweat of our brow. I mean, that was basically me going going around the world with banging on pots and pans to try to get people to try the wine and hear what we had to say, which was exceedingly difficult because um, especially the more sophisticated high end of the wine trade where people think they know everything, um, it's very... Um, it's it's important to try to get through to those people and until the word of mouth kicks in and all that the third party validation there's no other way to do it than to just jump out in front of people and be in their face and for a shy person that's amazingly challenging but practice makes perfect and uh, after a while you do lose all your stage fright that was one of the hardest parts for me is the stage fright and then now I have no problem telling um, any taxi driver or anybody who will listen to me in an airport queue about Chandra. Uh, but uh, it was really... I've heard you do it, as a matter of fact. <laughs> That's right. It's hard to be, you know, hi, you don't know me, but uh, here's this special little vineyard and you should try it and see if you like it. Uh, and luckily, as soon as people do try it, then, you know, you're, you're, you're 90% of the way there. So, uh, that's the hardest part, but I, I think the distribution was all, was all just, uh, sweat equity. Robert Joseph talks about this a lot, that awards are essential, the stickers, the stars, the points, the whole thing. So the awards and reviews are so necessary to build that um, those distribution channels. What were the things that you found needed to be in place before you could even get face-to-face -face meetings back in the day with potential representation, um, you know, retailers, stockists, restaurants, whatever it might be? Uh, absolutely. The, the surprising thing is how important those things were to wine trade people. That was one of the mistakes I made when I arrived. I figured the consumers don't always feel confident with their tasting skills and their ability to assess the quality of a fine wine. So for them, I knew that, um, all those validations would be really important, but I was surprised that the trade was also so insecure about their own <laughs> knowledge about whether something constituted a fine wine or not, and that they couldn't just taste something mm. and recognize that. So blind tastings were really important thing to add to your list. Uh, we put our, our wines in the, with the most iconic wines, not just from the region, but sometimes from the world. We encouraged produce, um, trade people to do the same. Our Korean importer, 
the chairman put our wine in with um, wines that we would never have thought to, to try them with, like um, Lanchebage and uh, um, Amaviva, right? I mean, we, we tend to get stuck into our whole Rhone iconography. Um, and then those our wines coming out, you know, the, the top or the, you know, one of the top one or two in these crazy blind tastings with, you know, the Vieux Telegraph Blanc or the, um, in the um, you know, the Rayas or, you know, whatever, you name them. That was so helpful because a lot of the Psalms and the people who participated in those tastings, a bit like the Judgment of Paris, I don't believe now that I know more about the wine trade that those people would have had the objectivity and the ability to appreciate the wines just for what was in the bottle um, if they hadn't tasted them blind. I think the filters that people had and the preconceived notions would have gotten in the way because I saw that happen too many times over. So yeah, I would add blind tastings to the, to the list. That was really reassuring. I, I'm nodding ferociously. People can't see it that I'm like, yes, because we've seen that too, just because our own, um, our own biases mean that we like something that we've liked before. We see, you know, we want to validate every decision we've ever made in the past. And we can't yeah. do that if we have all of, as you say, that tangible yeah. iconography sitting in and front of us. Yeah. I think the um, other thing to recognize yes. on that point, because it's, it is important if this, if any of what we're talking about can ever serve as a roadmap to another winery that is trying to find its way through the thicket of uh, options and, and decisions. Um, and I'm always, always happy to help anybody and to help them get over those hurdles because I'll never forget the people who helped me over mine and Robert Joseph, uh, case in point. one nine hundred call Nicole. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, uh, you know, the early adopters are really, really important to identify and, uh, and appreciate because another surprising thing is just how conservative some of the people at the top positions of gatekeeping, you know, as critics, et cetera, sommeliers can be because they have a lot to lose and very little to gain by endorsing something very new and potentially risky, right? Because mm. they, they, as, as incumbents, um, they're, um, you know, where, where is the upside for them really? Um, they're much better off uh, banging on about whether this, Bordeaux vintage is uh, better than the last one and, you know, whatever, than to really go out on a limb for a small winery. Um, and, and so occasionally they want to do it for their own purposes of, of looking like they're with the program and, you know, whether it's a new region or new country or something, or maybe a new producer uh, gives them a story and then they can make a big fuss about it. That's great. But fundamentally, as they accede to power, they, in my observation, can become very conservative and unwilling to just come out all guns blazing with a rating or something that is would have, you know, would or could have been a, a game changer for you. So what I would get a lot of is a really really flattering prose in the description of the wines. But 
quite conservative points compared to the wines that in a blind tasting mm. they or their peers might have <laughs> given us the full Monty, you know? And so <clears throat> that was interesting. It's less that case uh, today. And once again, I found the, the new world really, um, like in Australia, for example, a lot less of those uh, conservative barriers. Um, if they like what's in the bottle, I've seen a lot less uh, reticence to just put the points that they think does go with something that they really enjoy drinking. The competitions are an interesting one because the they're really designed a lot for volume of wines because their business model is to get as many people to register their wines as possible. And therefore the judges are sitting there with, you know, 200 wines to try in one day, et cetera. And those tend not to be the tasting conditions that really support very sophisticated, nuanced, fine wine. So they, after their whatever, 199th bottle, are they really in the mood to notice subtlety and nuance? And our, most of our top wines are aged uh, at least, you know, seven, eight years. So it's pretty impossible to put our wines in with a peer group that's truly comparable. And they tend to be quite subtle uh, and complex. And so those will tend not to be the, the wines that stand out, stand out. Now we've done really well. We've gotten gold medals everywhere from the UK to Hong Kong, to France, to Brussels, to whatever. So uh, this is not a, a complaint, but it's an observation that if you really want to do something sophisticated and niche, um, those giant competitions um, may or may not be the place where your wines are going to show showcase the best. And I would go back to the right. the critics routes and the blind tastings as a better a better place to go. So one of the things that I see from sort of newer businesses, newer wine businesses that they don't come from a, maybe a family history in in wine um, is this idea of if we can just get distribution, we're going to rock it. You know, if I can get my wines into pick a market, the UK, America used to be China, whatever it is, I'm good to go. And it's sweet sailing. Um, and, and that I think is because often we don't as an industry openly discuss the tangible and intangible cost of servicing those relationships. So, you know, to whatever extent you are willing to share, um, from time, effort, money, bottles, samples, <laughs> dinners, whatever it might be, <laughs> you know, what are the things, I mean, all of it, but how, what, without saying, what does it cost, Nicole? I mean, like what's actually involved in bringing this to bear? So that is one of the things that I was able to carry over from my former life in geopolitics and, and global finance, which is the, this notion of spreading risk through uh, asset allocation geographically. I think uh, we, we took a very long-term view on that. And of course, the first years, we were very happy to sell wine to absolutely anybody who wanted to buy it and we weren't picking and choosing. But um, but the bigger plan always was, and luckily we've stuck to it, to diversify uh, the risk geographically. And thank God we did that because wines like ours will often do 
relatively better in some markets like the US, which tend to be more open, you know, early adopters, things like that, excited to hear about a new region or a new winery. And then they'll quickly go on to the next thing, right? But but it, it's helpful at the beginning to not be up against the full weight of the um, the group think of, a, of, of very traditional countries. And uh, we could have really sold most of our production into the U.S. And we, thank God, didn't um, because when Trump showed up with his tariffs and all the stuff that we now uh, are very familiar with in, in wine history, we were able to have damage control. We also have a fantastic importer there that was in a position to make very good long-term decisions about how to handle that. And then, well, hold on. Can I stop right there? Yeah. Can can I interrupt on that? Um, So I think what you just said is really, really important for people to hear, which is think again, mindful, strategic, whatever, you know, thoughtful, whatever language you want to use to describe it, be considered in how you choose partners. Because again, you know, things I have seen, and this is certainly not everyone, is that a importer, distributor calls a brand and is like, hey, we'd love to know more about your wine. And this brand that's up and coming is like, yes, I'll get distribution instead of being like, okay, how closely aligned are they? What is, you know, how respected are they in the market? What does their portfolio look like? You know, reaching out and and even getting references on how are they treating the people who they picked up last year? You know, are they still excited and gung-ho about them? So that notion of, whoo, take a pause, let all of the enthusiasm go away for a moment. Because we all have that when we're starting out like, yes. And then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> now, what does this really oh, mean? Yes. Um, and and oh, for yes. you, you do have you do have purposefulness in the business. So that matters even more. Yes. So, you know, you, you have your, your finger on, on, on really, really crucial stuff, right? Because in the wine business, like, like everywhere, you're only as good as the weakest link in the chain, but the weakest link often turns out to be the importer, the person responsible for doing that. Now, with the exception of the U.S., that tends to be the distributor as well, right? But, um, uh, in our case, uh, the U.S. is a perfect example. Our importer is fantastic, but during COVID, uh, the distributors that they work with, some of them shut down completely, fired everyone, etc. <laughs> you can have the best importer in the world. You have no control over who they choose as distributors, and then you're completely at the mercy of what those distributors decide to do. So um, we, luckily, being small and quite international and Quite, you know, if we can't pivot, who can, right? So we did so much pivoting in those cases, but the, it never ends. We were doing very well in Asia. We were working with a company called Sarmont that was um, in four countries with us, and um, they were purchased by Bulgari. This is a, you know, nothing confidential here. And um, during the pandemic, uh, Bulgari 
board decided that in their portfolio of all their luxury holdings, et cetera, what was this wine distribution company doing that could never bring the yields that other companies in the luxury sector were, were yielding and decided to pull the plug mm. for completely logical reasons in their way of looking at the world uh, that even though they were a successful wine distributor that could never keep up with some of their tech investments, et cetera. And from one day to another, we were high and dry in four countries in Asia. Um, so that can happen to absolutely anyone all the time. And I would recommend to anyone who's thinking about doing what we've done to just be absolutely prepared to go to many, many markets and kiss a lot of frogs until you meet your princes, um, because that is going to make your life just so different. Nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants the, the easy fix magic wand. I found the people who want all our production. Yes, they're asking for a, a, a big price cut, but then we don't have to worry mm-hmm. about the lines. We don't have to travel. We don't have to deal with all those darn contracts or blah, blah, blah. But actually, you really, really expose yourself to tremendous long-term risk by doing things that way. I would not recommend it. I think the way we did it or, okay, I did it because I don't want to take undue credit for other things that we did in our business, but that was pretty much 99% me. It was your baby. Yeah. And I had the great fortune of having a fabulous business partner, Laura Iverson, who was immensely helpful, especially in the U S and, um, you know, our daughter, Danielle, who, who joined us and helped us on the export side, et cetera. So, you know, great team, but in the end, pounding the pavement. I had a, a funny situation one time during the wine, um, the New York wine experience, the famous wine spectator event, lots of famous winemakers in town and a friend invited me to this fabulous lunch with uh, Edmond de Rothschild and uh, the, you know, Bouy Monrose people and all these, you know, famous people from everywhere. And there were maybe eight of us and we all broke bread around being vignerons and and sharing the fate of depending on the weather and all this stuff. It was all wonderful. And we communed around these shared values. And then at the end of the, at the meal, we went to the coat check and I, um, and and, and, and Mondero Chils was picking up his, you know, aqua scotum raincoat. um, And I Mm. picking up my little black bag and he, Walk, we walked out together and a Bentley whisked by and swept him off to some fancy somewhere. And I went down Madison Avenue with my little roller bag um, to go see some wine shop and do my thing. Uh, and our worlds just parted again. You're like, I'm still working. I'm still working. <laughs> you know, there's a, a yeah. twist to the little to the little black roller bag um, with all the wines in it. So. You know? So a question on that, if you don't mind telling me, what year was that? Would would you possibly have any memory of how far down the line this was that, uh, that you had this lunch? It was the beginning. It was probably 2009 or 10. Um, and that was... Okay. That was interesting because that was also around the time that we decided to host this uh, International Grenache Symposium. 
and um, was supposed to be yes. 40 people, you know, Steven Spurrier, who had said, what's the problem with Grenache? We, we asked him how come Grenache was not so well known. He's like, oh, that's a really good question. No one's asked that before. It doesn't make any sense. Let's think about it and and see what it would what it would take to fix it. And then that escalated into uh, 270 people from 23 countries at our vineyard in the first year that I was supposed to be selling wine. And it cost us so much on every front. Um, it almost cost me my health. Mm. But one of the things it did cost us was a, a, a UK um, importer who uh, shan't be mentioned, uh, one of the, one of the you know, more reputable ones, and uh, who ended up uh, leaving us at the altar because um, I guess I wasn't, you know, proactive enough about getting back to him about our pricing or something because of the symposium. And we were so grateful because we ended up um, meeting Justerini and Brooks, which I'll put in a plug for, because that's a perfect example of a company that you might not immediately um, get all excited about because they're quite traditional they're not necessarily known as, you know, innovators or uh, super proactive, etc. They are so reputable and in difficult moments with difficult harvests and and those times that try your your partnership and your relationship, they will stick with you through thick and thin in ways that other importers are going to take short-term decisions to renege on commitments they had, you know, signed up for, et cetera, et cetera, leave you in a difficult year with all this extra wine uh, on your hands, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so there are definitely good guys out there, but the problem is they're not always the ones that you hear about the most, uh, the shiny ones that people are talking about, et cetera. So having any kind of uh, contact in the market, I'd recommend sommeliers, even, even, you know, even anybody in any fancy restaurant, if you can talk to the wine buyer there and see who in the trade they think is doing a very good job, who's there to fight for them and to get them what they need when they need it, um, you can save so much money rather than signing up for all those services that connect you with importers or do all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, a sommelier will often be nice enough to to give you the name of their contact and you can get in that way instead of sending those horrible emails that nobody ever opens about the, you know, hi, we're looking for distribution in your country. Would you consider here's our, you know, nobody will ever even, even open the email, let alone give you a call. And now actually they're coming through DMS because I'll see them for my clients that they'll come in through DMS on Instagram, that kind of thing. So it feels more personal, but there's still like this really cold kind of outreach. Um, so a, a couple things just to touch upon. I, I think that we can't um, not discuss something that you referenced, which is things go wrong, you know, risk mitigation. We have a few tools in our belt to manage this. One is that we have safe margins, which is very difficult for wine to discuss. We do not like talking about our pricing. And the other things is that we have expanded offerings. You are very public and it's all over the place about all of the, the, all of the events, the tourism, the education, the hospitality, all the ways Mm -hmm. that you have built a brand that is beyond the commodified fermented wine juice in a bottle. 
<laughs> yeah. I'll pass so it over to you. A lot of that has, you know, ties back in with this idea of banging on pots and pans, right? Because, because how do you get people to stop and notice and talk about you and try your wine and all of that? And so, um, the, the inference of, of what you just said is that there's, there's going to be, there are going to be a lot of costs associated with having to do something other than put wine in, you know, make wine and put it in a bottle and get it to where it needs to go. Right. In fact, most of the transport is usually picked up by the importer. So uh, people do their estimates about what something's going to cost to make the wine, et cetera. And I think they grossly underestimate the part that the, the selling and, and marketing costs associated with that. And just the, the fact of showing up, right? Showing up is 90% of the battle. Um, and yet the travel costs and, and personal costs associated with that are things that people don't often want to have to um, pay for. <laughs> so yeah. that's where- Well, I mean, even, I, I will just jump in on, on the small producer side of things. Even the number of businesses, and this is not just wine, this is all businesses, where we've got small teams and the owner operator does not pay themselves a salary. Well, what happens if, you know, you get hit by a bus, you break a leg, you get COVID, something, you know, like, mm-hmm. how are we supposed <laughs> to have safe, resilient businesses? Are, uh, off the record. I haven't. Oh, my God. Pay yourself a salary. That's what I'm saying to everyone. Give yourself the first part of the wage um, because it's just and, and I think we really did see this over the past. Well, oh, my God. How far are we into it now? over two years at this point where the world went mad. Right. And if we didn't have any resiliency and the resiliency, that risk mitigation comes from a lot of different angles. It's not just margins and spreadsheets. It's not just our markets. It's not just our different offerings. I I do think that this is kind of like coming back to the very, very beginning, which is saying that we think about the business quite differently then perhaps it's historically been considered. Um, so that's there. Sorry, soapbox off my soapbox. Um, so no, no, going no. back to that notion of everything that it takes to be resilient or sustainable, yeah. if we want to call it that. Um, you know, I'm a kind of accidental entrepreneur, right? I think some people really have that style, and sometimes they back on they back into entrepreneurship because they see that the corporate world or you know big organizations, all that stuff, office politics makes them not well suited for the the other kinds of uh, of jobs and so they sort of naturally gravitate to the entrepreneurial space that wasn't my experience at all i had really good experience in big companies with the camaraderie and in very established places with the networks that were already in place and the only experience i had with entrepreneurship was within the confines of merrill lynch where i was working um, we were on a very new product. It was Latin American equities at a time where those markets weren't really in full throttle. And it was after the debt crisis and everything had been sort of decimated by the crisis. So we, it was this big build slash rebuild. And there were three of us on the team when we started. And by the time I left, there was more like 300. So I was part of that big push. And I would go into new markets and new clients and all of that and have to uh, 
um, knock on doors and, and convince people that my product was worthy before they even got to the point of deciding that they should be working with us and not our competitors. Right. And that was very exciting because we did take it from absolutely non-existent to number one in the world in the time that I was there. And my fiefdom in particular was, you know, very, went very well. So I, I had a little bit of the taste for how hard that was going to be and how many times you had to call someone before they would start listening to you or taking your call. And thank God I had that because it helped me in the wine business to deal with that rejection, which doesn't suit well my personality. Just to remember that when I had done it before at Merrill Lynch, it, it, if, if the perseverance and the tenacity that you talk, talked about, about just waiting and waiting and then eventually warming your way into people's consciousness and then them deciding to give you a chance. And then when you have the chance, obviously you have to deliver the goods. Um, so that was, yeah. that was it. That was my one experience with entrepreneurship. And I have to tell you now that I'm a serial entrepreneur because I kind of only focus on things that, that haven't been done and that seem impossible to other people. That transition uh, is, I would, I would say the most, um, the hardest thing, just like you referred to, is that back to the money thing, you, you, you know, entrepreneurs don't pay themselves a salary from the get go. They risk everything. They work three times harder for three times less. All of that takes nerves of steel and a strong stomach um, and a lot of because a lot of punches to that stomach. Um, and I. I'm pretty, I hope I don't regret these words, but I do think we're, you know, that's, that's the past that's done all that hard startup stuff. Like you have had triplets, you know, and I, I just have no idea how they got through that. I just can't imagine what the early years would have been like for them. And yet when you're thrust into a certain situation, somehow you find the resilience, you find the ideas, you find the resources, you find the help. And if for some reason, someone listening to this is toying with the idea of being an entrepreneur and hasn't been one and doesn't know if they have what they takes, I would advise them to just do it because they'll be just like me. It'll be sink or swim and they'll do whatever they have to do until the job gets done. And then it will get easier and, and things will, this, the ratio of. But it won't really, because once it gets easier, you're going to find the next thing that that's, you know, going to push it a little choice. bit harder. Maybe it does become it does become a norm it does become a norm but it becomes a choice and uh and now i wouldn't trade that for anything and one of the big things we haven't talked about is this notion of legacy and you look at a business and of course you look at the PL and you look at the margins and that's crucial and you can't keep going if you can't kind of get your head just, just above water there to get by or have somebody who has the, the patience and resources to help you through those early days, uh, which was my case. And I'll always be grateful to, to my husband for having been so supportive. Xavier was amazing that way to the moral support and everything else that we needed to, to get through those, those horrible years of just, you know, um, but but yeah. having said that, you really you can't look at a wine business purely 
through the lens of whether or not it's a good business. I mean, when I studied at UC Davis, there were, you know, there was a Harvard business case study specifically about why the wine business was so bad by any objective point of view. They made quadrants and they showed, you know, capex versus, you know, barriers to entry versus this versus that in every, from every lens, Mm -hmm. Wine businesses were in the bottom quadrant, the one you don't want to be in, <laughs> that horrible box along with, I think, filmmaking and a couple of other things um, that you shouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. And yet so many people do pile into there. And I'd argue, Polly, that many of those people are not really driven by financial rewards. They are putting other factors into the equation. That's what gets the business in trouble from a business point of view. But those other things have to be accounted for. And as hard as it is and as miserable as the first years will be for anybody starting up in this field, the the camaraderie, the joys, the the excitement, the adventure, uh, not to mention all the stuff we all know about, which is just pure to vineyard touching grapes and being in that environment of watching things grow, those things really have a huge, huge dividend. And we talk about goodwill when you look at a brand. And I like to think that Chen Bleu has created a lot of goodwill with its brand. Um, But the goodwill that the wine world brings to the people who work in it is something that I wouldn't trade any time for the vicissitudes of working, you know, in a, in a different environment with something that I'm not genuinely passionate about. I want to change gears for one last question. So you and I were at the Financial Times presentation for their white paper, The New Face of Luxury, which is available online if anybody wants to go to the FT and download that, um, in which they presented their recent research on the luxury market derived from FT readers. So that is a, you know, just one of the caveats of their particular um, research. Was there anything in their luxury brand research that really jumped out at you and you were like, okay, Chen Bleu needs this. I need to know this as a thinker and entrepreneur. And really, this is a big redirect in how we're all working. The short answer is no. I think uh, I spend a lot of time trying to be really tuned into the environment that uh, surrounds me. So I'm very sensitive person. They say I'm hypersensitive, which is a problem when you're dealing with rejection or setbacks, but is an advantage when you're trying to care about what people think or want or, or, or think they want, (laughs) not always the same thing. Um, Mm. and, um, and, and I think that that's the, that I, I understand elements of, of the luxury market that, they address. And the big thing that helped me a lot was to see that whole groups of consumers that they had identified were genuinely caring now about sustainability as being a cornerstone in a purchasing decision. I thought there was more lip service to that or more, or or that it wasn't so important. And when we did studies uh, with the Irani Global Institute for the Future of Fine Wine, which uh, I know that you've surely talked about in in other forums and 
Pauline has done, uh, Pauline Vicar has done such, such good research on, on some of these topics, we got a lot of feedback that in fine wine, nobody was putting sustainability as a criteria to really um, focus on when in their fine wine decisions, it was like 25th on the list. And that startled me in a bad way because we've been leaders in that area and we really care about it. Uh, we It made me think that consumers are amazingly ignorant about how so much of the wine they drink is not produced sustainably. Uh, the trade isn't asking the right questions. The critics are not holding uh, producers to the high enough standards. I'm quite cross about the middlemen not doing their job to expose, you know, who's who's doing the right thing and who isn't and make that a part of their assessment of who's in and who's out. Luckily, there are many exceptions and more and more of them. But so the big takeaway from the luxury event was that that might just be a lag time. And since wine is slow to adopt new ideas and new ways of thinking, um, and the luxury world is moving very fast, um, the there's a chance that finally, finally, wine consumers are going to start um, expecting at least the fine wine producers to be absolutely cutting edge in terms of uh, uh, in terms of what they do if nothing else because we're guardians of a little piece of their world and we are the nannies the babysitters who are supposed to be looking after that particular child of theirs and we have a responsibility that's much greater than somebody else down the street making widgets so from the i think i hope that Consumers are starting to understand that the future of agriculture really lies in regenerative. And the reason being that if everyone stops using chemicals and starts doing things in a sustainable way, organic, et cetera, cover crops, all the things that everybody knows now are the right way to do things, we don't just stop the carbon emissions uh, in our area, we actually reverse them for us and for everybody else. So agriculture is in this crucial, crucial position that we can either be a significant part of the problem, up to 20% of you know carbon footprint of the planet, et cetera, or a significant part of the solution, which is not true for cars and other guys. So if we all start using donkeys, that doesn't reduce the carbon that's in the atmosphere the way we do. So that would be, I guess, the the area that I think um, luxury should be heading in is that every consumer of fine wine should be holding the wine business to the same standards that they're now uh, applying to other uh, luxury goods. Damn. I, I will just add to that. Um, working in with fashion and beauty and luxury brands, one of the things that we see a lot of, because we do a lot of work on kind of like sustainable digital development, messaging, that kind of thing. Um, this is just my little addition that everyone needs to be aware of. There are a lot of organizations right now who are actively calling out the brands who are not doing the right thing. Um, 
what happened with Patagonia this week was, I think, an absolute game changer for brands putting their, you know, money where their mouth is in terms of activism, sustainable choices, and purpose-driven. I really like the people who come with solutions because the, the sort of name and shame crowd often have no idea no idea of the costs and the problems and the challenges that that exist to people who want to do the right thing, but don't have the margins and the resources to do those things right. the way they'd like to, etc. Whereas there are some companies, and I think in particular of, of uh, some of the guys we work with, where we, we've been working with a company called Positive Luxury, uh, you know, they actually... Help I work with share. them as well. We've yeah. interviewed Diana. Oh, that's great. Because, you know, here's a company who actually helps you get to where, from where you are to where you want to go, shares best practices that others are doing so that you can not have to reinvent the wheel and all that stuff, you know, really gives you a roadmap um, to how to, how to continue bettering yourself because we all know there's no before and after. But here we are having started, I think, you know, 25 years ahead of most people, still struggling because we still have blind spots. We have very difficult challenges because we built our winery before all this technology existed for, you know, green this and water capture and carbon capture and this and that. So retrofitting all that stuff is super complicated. So all this amazing work that we've done in the vineyard is, you know, we have to make sure that then that gets carried over into the winery, et cetera. So all of these challenges that, you know, who has the time and the money to, to come up with all those solutions? It's really great to support the organizations who support the people who are trying to do a good thing and, and, and maybe be a little bit sort of skeptical about the ones who are just there to, to name and shame everyone who hasn't done everything perfectly because they may not have had to, to see how hard it is to do the right thing. So I agree with you. Uh, it's a very important topic. I'm going to give a shout out on that as well to the team at the Porto Protocol, because actually I think in terms of wine solutions, um, they have a model which is sort of come wherever you are. You're welcome. No judgment. We'll, yeah, we will align you with the solutions that match your particular space and time, your set of problems, your budget, whatever. And collectively, we all work together. If we go all the way back to what are all those costs? What are the things that we never knew? I can't speak for you, but I can at least say for myself is I love my job, but frankly, how exhausted you can be sometimes. Oh so God. one of the costs is, management is, you know, <laughs> a good night's sleep maybe doesn't happen the way that you thought it would. Um, even if you're sleeping out on the vineyard. We'll call each other at three o'clock in the morning, struggling with some big deadline. It's the bat phone where you can see that everyone's still awake at night and you're like, oh, um, I'm so grateful. I know you have a thousand demands on your time as we've talked about today, but you know, I really appreciate you being candid about some of the challenges for you um, coming from, you know, coming from such a, a background of knowledge and business know-how and even with that standing behind you what it took for you to build Schindler. Um, and I hope that everybody's listening will kind of take this as a really good masterclass and, okay, these are the things you're not going to think about. This is how you mitigate risk. And this is how we overcome some of our, you know, just our, our nature, 
the, our nature that comes with us that stands in our way. Um, so thank you, Nicole. I'm grateful. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, and for me, having mentors and having peer mentors, as we've talked about in the past, has been crucial. And if I can ever uh, help other people with what they're dealing with, I'm very, very happy, happy to do that because uh, because it is so hard to come up with that that winning roadmap. And I'm happy to say that 15 years into it, we have achieved pretty much everything we, we set out as our first objectives, but we're still completely creating the Chen Bleu 2.0 uh, and where we go from here so we can all learn from each other. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening and a great big thank you to Nicole Rollet for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.